0: Welcome to Better Off Red. All right. Today, Danny catches out. And so our producer, Eric Ruder, is here with me as co-host. I'm Jen Rush, by the way. Hey, Jen. Um, So today we've got a great episode. We're interviewing... Alex Vitale, who's written a great new book called The End of Policing. Um, We'll just leave that provocative title with you for a while. But first, we're discussing a minor political earthquake in New York with national implications. That would be the surprise victory of socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over longtime incumbent Joseph Crowley in the Democratic primary. So we'll be back.
1: We're going to get into the, the victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a moment. But first, it's just worth stepping back and saying, what a hell of a week. Um, I mean, there's been a, just a series of hammer blows from the Supreme Court. Um, the travel ban, Janus, the uh, upholding of, of a law that allows pro-life family planning centers in California. Fake abortion clinics, essentially. Fake abortion clinics, essentially, to to keep that that whole question of abortion off the table. Um, And then, after a series of, like, already alarming Supreme Court rulings, we learned that Justice Kennedy is going to be retiring in about six weeks and that they're planning on getting a a Trump nominee to the Supreme Court through before the elections happen in November, giving them basically... um, you know, making it so that the Republicans can pretty much do this on their own. Whatever the Democrats do would essentially be a futile effort at this point.
0: Well, and I think it says something about the state of um, mainstream politics in this country, that Kennedy, who is a conservative justice, who's ruled, um, you know, with the right on any number of questions just in the last several weeks, there's still a feeling of like coming apocalypse that he's going to be replaced by someone even farther Uh, to the right than him. Um, You know, McCundrathy, who was on our show just a few weeks ago, who's a law student, actually made a really great point, though, that, you know, abortion rights, which everybody now thinks Roe v. Wade is potentially under threat, which is a valid fear. Abortion rights were actually one um, under Nixon's administration. And so it has a lot more to do with the state of the left and popular struggles than just, you know, who's the unelected person uh, sitting in the Supreme Court with a job for life, which, you know, maybe is a good way to pivot to the victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because I think it speaks to the other side of what's going on. We have these massive attacks, but also there's a growing resistance to those attacks. And there's clearly a growing desire for for an alternative.
1: The sense of excitement, I think, is maybe best captured by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's own face when I think she first saw those results. (laughs) Oh, my Lord, she was absolutely blown away, I think, as everyone was, because here is a 28-year-old Latina socialist activist running for Congress against the fourth most powerful Democrat who's been in an incumbent for 20 years. The last time he even faced a primary challenger, I think that... Ocasio-Cortez was 13 13 years old, um, and she uh, she wins in this incredible upset on running on a platform basically that includes Medicare for all free college tuition and perhaps most remarkable abolish ICE being something that she, you know, Mm -hmm. made uh, a centerpiece of what she talked about throughout the campaign, throughout the debates that she had or really one, one debate with right. with Crowley,
0: yeah, and I mean, she came up with that abolish ICE demand before it started to take traction, and before I think the policy of family separations at the border that have brought this to national light. And this is someone who, you know, you have a lot of Democrats now starting to say they're for Medicare for all. Um, I don't really believe them, mm-hmm. um, but there's a number mm-hmm. of Democrats who are willing to sign on to that as something that you know, polishes their liberal credentials or even free college tuition might even be something that people are willing to talk about. But to talk about abolishing ICE is a pretty major demand. She also talks about far reaching criminal justice reform. And, you know, she puts her money where her mouth is too. like the final canvassing opportunities. And instead of knocking on doors in the Bronx and Queens, she goes to Texas to protest um, the policies going on. Um, At the border. And actually, she talks about how she got political and she decided to start getting active around going to Standing Rock um, and fighting the pipeline there and standing with indigenous uh, people who are struggling back there. So it's really something. You know, it it flows in a lot of ways from the 2016 elections and what Sanders campaign opened up. But it's also very much to the left in a lot of ways of Sanders campaign, because this is someone who's not someone who's been in the Senate, you know, for decades. But this is someone who's 20 or 28 year old woman who I think really comes out of the Black Lives Matter movement, comes out of sort of some of the insurgencies of the last several years, which I think is just really exciting.
1: Yeah. And her campaign. Uh, always emphasized that she is this Puerto Rican from the community, Mm -hmm. grew up in the Bronx, and where as part of her campaign platform, she just consistently harped on the themes that like, I stand with and I'm from the working class communities mm-hmm. that this that are that make up this district. She used the phrase working class yeah. over and over again. Not working families. Right. Working class. Working class. And she put out this video that went viral that I think right. probably helped really catapult her profile um, that that was so um, earnest in talking about how she, you know, is is from these places and that this, you know, and and the kind of. The counterpoint, of course, is Joseph Crowley, who, you know, it's it's kind of even just looking at him, it's hard to imagine that um, he has much to do with of anything with the queen with Queens and the Bronx, which is the <laughs> sort of the two boroughs that yeah. his district straddles, um, and which I believe the statistic is like eighty percent non-white.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things I think her campaign cuts through that's important, like a lesson for us to draw is that in the wake of Trump's election in 2016, there was this whole argument that sort of pitted like so-called identity politics Mm -hmm. against sort of economic issues and this idea that we lost white working class voters. And that was really the problem with, you know the Democratic Party, that's like too much embraced these special interest groups. And, you know, what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did is she fused those two things together. And she Absolutely. talks about how there's no economic issue that's not also simultaneously a racial issue. And there's no racial issue that's not simultaneously an economics issue. And kind of she did that by being like a working class person in the Bronx. Like that is the reality. You know, we've talked a lot on this show, like Sarah Jaffe was on talking about, you know, who the working class is today. And I think that we saw that really expressed in her campaign.
1: Yeah. Well, and when her campaign got started, I think she was still working as a server in a restaurant. I mean, you know, she talks about
0: being alongside undocumented people in the back of the house.
1: Exactly. The way in which this punches through and the reason that it's kind of got people excited and kind Mm -hmm. of trying to, to absorb what's happened here is that here is someone who's running for office for the first time. She raised $600,000 through small donations. Mm-hmm. I think you were saying it was like about $20. $17, $17 I think. was the average size of the donation. By contrast, her opponent Crowley had a war chest of $3 million.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, in 85% of Democratic House primaries this year, the winner was the candidate who raised the most money in 252 out of 296 races. So she basically overcame incredible odds by even though she was, you know, far outgunned, you know, on the contributions side. And, you know, but you can understand also how this was possible because Crowley— was so rusty, he really yeah. hasn't had to face anything uh, approaching a uh, a challenge. and when he tried to figure out how to counter her, for example, on the question of ice and when she started calling yeah. calling for abolishing ice, when he was asked about it he he actually tried to kind of take her thunder by calling ice a fascist organization. but then when he was asked whether it should be abolished, he actually He hesitated. So wait, it's a fascist organization (laughs) that you don't even think should be abolished?
0: (laughs) I mean, the guy just clearly hasn't had to do or say or campaign for anything. I mean, I think he was taken aback because he's not even the worst of the neoliberal Democrats. And that was kind of his argument. His argument was, oh, we're not that far apart. We have a lot of the same positions. I'm for Medicare for all. I'm for free public tuition, but I'm the experienced candidate. Um, although part of what that misses is that the experience that people, these incumbents have had spending 20 years in Washington politics is exactly the experience that people don't want to have. And it's the experience of people out on the streets and protesting that they do want to see um, represented. And he just had no, I mean, they totally slept on this. Like they, they, This is a historically low turnout congressional district. Like it has historically low levels of voter turnout and that's how they like it. And I think that that's one of the things, and this was true in 2016 too, one of the things about not just the Democratic Party, also the Republican Party, but like the whole political system is built on the passivity, you know, of voters, of not turning people out um, or only turning out like your very, you know, your engaged interest groups that you know are sort of reliable. And it's because of that that they were really able to target this district. And, you know, the voter turnout was still very low. I mean, you know, it's a district of 700,000 and Ocasio-Cortez won with 16,000, 16, votes
1: to Crowley's 12,000, <laughs> which which is a huge margin. Um, I mean, you know, yeah. in, in electoral it's terms, a decisive it's, victory. 15% margin, very big, but yeah, it gives you some notion of like what this is based on when the turnout in a total district of 700,000 people is, you know, total turnout, 28,000 people.
0: Right. I, one thing we, you know, before we... Move on that we didn't sort of say right up front, but I think is important. Like she's an open socialist; she's not just a sort of self-proclaimed socialist in the way that Sanders is, but she's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America (DSA). Um, she's she's an organized uh, socialist, and she talks about that in her debate with Crowley when he asked her if she would endorse him if he won the primary. Her answer was, well, I have to I'm accountable to a movement and I have to go back to that movement and find out what they think and what they want to say about that. But I also think that that question that he asked her speaks to a lot of the pressures that are going to be on here as she kind of enters the lion's den of Democratic Party and Washington politics.
1: Well, yeah, there was a firestorm on Twitter um, about that particular question about, oh, my God, can you believe that she wouldn't endorse a, uh, a another Democrat in the event that she lost, even though this is a totally safe district. I mean, if she, if Crowley had won, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> he would obviously win this race. And the fact that it is such a safe district means that though she hasn't won the general election yet, she's pretty sure to. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of almost uh, inconceivable in a, yeah. that yeah. she wouldn't win in November. Um, yeah. And it does seem to me that one of the things that um, that. Given that the Democratic Party is now starting to have a, a bigger taste of what the Republican Party already went through in 2016, in other words, during the 2016 campaign,
2: mm-hmm. there
1: there was this was this time when everyone knew it was an anti there was this massive anti-incumbent sentiment. Right. But the Democratic Party and the Democratic National Committee in particular yeah. was able to basically crush the Sanders insurgency, and right. they could maintain their grip. Right. And the Republicans lost their grip right. and it turned out being the thing that actually enabled them to win
0: That's a really good point. in the
1: fall mm-hmm. uh, of 2016 now we're starting to see the establishment you know in various places on the democratic side losing mm-hmm. its grip and here's you know a kind of maybe one of the most striking examples so far but it does seem that at the same time the democratic party uh, leadership understands that they have to figure out how to reach out to their left in order mm-hmm. to draw people in. And so one of the things that, that seems likely, at least in the short run, is that they will try to reach out to Ocasio-Cortez and to sort of kill her with kindness, like you were saying before, to try to swamp the, 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 the very left-wing message that she's putting out with this sense that, oh, this is actually part and parcel of the Democratic Party big tent politics that we've always embraced.
0: Right, right, which, I mean, is so hypocritical because they didn't even know who Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was before Tuesday night, probably. <laughs> Absolutely. Nancy Pelosi probably had to do her research and be like, who is this person? And actually her... Um, her response was really kind of gross because she was asked if like socialism is on the rise in the democratic party. And she was like, no, I don't think so. Um, and then she's like, maybe in that district, which uh, you're just kind of like the yeah, veiled racism yeah. of that is, is quite something. Um, but she also congratulated Ocasio-Cortez and you're starting to see the think pieces. There was an article in the Washington post arguing that this was actually, like, a huge favor to the Democratic Party because now Crowley wouldn't automatically ascend into the leadership and that we need to put a younger face on the Democratic Party. We need to put the face of a person of color. Mm -hmm. We need to put the face of, you know, women, that these are the people who need to be the public face of the Democratic Party. Um, But the whole discussion is about changing the public face. It's not actually about changing the policies or the composition or, or, or the fundamental, you know, nature of the democratic party in any way. And so in that sense, I think they're going to, there is going to be a lot of pressure on her. Just even immediately, like that whole debate about would she endorse Crowley? Mm -hmm. It's like everybody, the argument is we need to get, you know, we need to flip the house in Mm -hmm. 2018 Mm -hmm. and you know, Casio cortez is a socialist who will be running in 2018. She will be surrounded a number, most incumbents won their elections in the primaries. Most mm-hmm. are either neoliberal Democrats, centrist Democrats, or garden variety liberal Democrats who aren't even close to the positions she holds. But there's going to be an argument for sort of a united party to to flip the House to have a blue wave. And the question of like, are you gonna, you know, are you gonna raise criticisms of these other Democrats running, or are you going to be part of that blue wave? Like even before she takes office, she's gonna be confronted with those questions.
1: Yeah, and there there that is basically the price of entry here. I mean, that is just the kind of the way that this that partisan politics, especially given the fact that um the, you know, the whole electoral system is just set up to favor both parties mm-hmm. um and to exclude other alternatives. And it's fav- it's set up to favor the incumbents. I mean, I, I gave you the statistic yeah. earlier about um about the money race and how that's that um is so powerful but just the power of incumbency generally i mean mm. in house races historically this year may may be different um because of this you know just deep seated anger at the political establishment but generally speaking the power of incumbency means that 90% of those who run for re-election um win in the house because you know it's every 2 years you're constantly fundraising you're The moment from the moment you get elected, you have to be preparing for the for the for the the race two years down the road, down the road. And um, and Crowley has been doing that for 20 years. Um, And so that's why, you know, he's been he was talked about as the potential successor to Nancy Pelosi. Um, I guess he's going to have to find something else to do. It seems like maybe
0: I think he probably has a plan. Bruce Springsteen covers
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is uh this is next gig
0: yeah eric's referring to the fact that when he lost he uh, started playing born to run and dedicated it to ocasio cortez which yeah. was uh really quite something of a scene for this 57 year old white man 20 or 20 year incumbent um on the hill so but i think these are you know That whole question, I mean, the whole fundraising thing, I saw this humor piece that was hilarious. It was a fake letter from Schumer and Pelosi to Mm. the unnamed newcomer. It was like, great to have you. Now you'll be locked, you know, on the Hill six hours a day during legislative sessions, making phone calls to donors who will be happy to pass your legislation as long as you support their big pharma bill that they're passing through the finance committee or I'm or something along those lines. And it was just it was a very cynical humorous takedown, but it also pointed to the absolute corruption um, of Democratic Party politics and the way these committees work and who gets nominated to what chair and how much you're able to speak out, especially as a House member. It's like on the one hand, there's this opportunity to have a socialist in Congress who can you know, has a platform. And I think that for a little while at least there will be some interest in the, you know, just the novelty of that for the media Mm -hmm. means that she can do a press conference about abolishing ICE or she could do a press conference about, you know, um, this case in New York City about this immigrant who was detained after, you know, soldiers at the um, army base in Staten Island turned him in when he was delivering a pizza. It would be really great to see um, Ocasio-Cortez at a press conference for Pablo via Vicencio with, you know, activists who have been working on the ground and, and sort of heightened and publicized that case. And that's that's sort of some of the best case scenario of what could be done. But the pressure to be out there on the campaign trail for people, also just tying people down in bureaucratic and logistical work and house committees and all the rest of that, that's going to be the, that's sort of the other, the other side of it that you know, as a, you know, as a genuine outsider, I think Mm -hmm. she is a genuine outsider who, you know, this is not, she didn't choose to be a politician. Every indication is that she has tons of integrity, tons of passion, does not want to be in politics, is doing this because people thought she would be good at it. And so she's like, okay, this is the role I'll play. And then she's going to be thrust into this position with, you know, basically a bunch of sharks.
1: Yeah, if we take a step back, I think and look at just the last few months, it really is important to reiterate that the teach the wave of teacher rebellions, yeah. the protests at the border, these are the sorts of things that have had a sweeping impact on not only people's day-to-day lives in the here mm-hmm. now, I mean, to the idea that you could go from never, not really expecting any serious raise that could change your standard of living mm-hmm. to as the result of a few months of protests and strikes,
2: mm-hmm. suddenly
1: you could be looking at a 10 or 15% raise over the course of a few right. years. I mean, that is going to transform people's lives. The border protests that have basically put family separations at the center of a national discourse and have compelled the Trump administration, which is not inclined to back down <laughs> on Anything to actually to put have it to, mildly: Yeah, to, to have to retreat on this question. I mean, these struggles are the way to change society and throughout American history. I mean, the biggest moments for winning reforms that, that improve people's lives, the 1930s, the 1960s were times of very high social struggle and, and workplace struggle. Um, so that's not to say that elections don't matter. It's just that we have to keep them in in their proper perspective. And someone like Ocasio-Cortez could use, can use the power of elected office to help fortify and give a profile to those movements. Mm -hmm. And I think at least for, for, for me, I think that that is really the most important thing that, um, that she's been able to win and that, that this, um, that this race, you know, kind of raises the prospects for people to think about, to begin to kind of figure out how to put in into motion those sorts of efforts.
0: Yeah, I think just to two things I wanted to say about that. One is just to be really concrete about how movements make a difference. It's like we've talked about how important it is that she's talked about abolishing ICE and how that gives legitimacy. But the reality is that her calling for the abolition of ICE would sound like such an out there demand If it weren't for the fact Mm -hmm. that there have been tens of thousands of people who've started taking to the streets around the family separations, around the deportations, there are networks of immigrant rights activists who have put this demand forward and are making that grounded in a struggle that gives it a power and a legitimacy that otherwise it wouldn't have. Otherwise it would be just treated as this kind of fringe, as kind of this fringe thing. And without that movement, you wouldn't have that. That's just a very concrete example of the relationship between the electoral and the movement. And then obviously her platform can then further develop that. But without the movement, like it kind of withers on the vine. And I think the other thing I was going to say is that everything you're saying is true about potentially the role of having a seat in Congress could play for projecting that. But there's there's two other pressures. One is the pressure to get things done, mm-hmm. right, to deliver actual reforms. Right.
1: Practical policy measures.
0: Right. And you don't get practical policy measures without making a whole bunch, in this current context of how things are set up, without a whole bunch of compromises. Um, and so there's going to be that sort of pressure to get things done. Done, and then there's just the trap of being in the Democratic Party, which is a party that's fundamentally hostile to everything she is raising and everything that she stands for. And that that contradiction, that contradiction is a real one that will have to be addressed at some point.
1: Yeah, and it's something that the left is going to have to engage with, and will engage with, has engaged with historically and will continue to in the present because there's a kind of spectrum of different ways to think about that, right? There's, there are those who say, yeah, agree with you. The democratic party is hostile at least now, but it could be remade and we can take it back. Then there are those who say, no, we can't take it back, but we can and should use the ballot line to advance our agenda and then have some future effort that could, Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of flow out of that. Then there's the argument that the Democratic Party is actually just fundamentally hostile to the interests of the working Mm -hmm. class, and that what we really need is to figure out how to bring together people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but not just her, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: thousands and tens of thousands of people like her to come together to actually forge a different party that's based around a different set of interests and that isn't integrated thoroughly into the kind of ruling class agenda and the state structures that Mm -hmm. preserve um, American capitalism that uphold the whole kind of edifice. Um, And those are, these are, these are the big debates that the left has had to engage over the course of, you know, more than a century, really, um, in in the terms that, you know, we've been talking about it now. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, this is going to be just one kind of further um, episode in that particular debate, but one that I think we are all can agree is like an exciting development because of, you know, what it says, what her victory says about changing consciousness and the changing opportunities that the left faces at a time when Left wing consciousness is growing, left wing organization is growing, mm-hmm. and there's social movements that right. you know around whether we're talking about the border and you know this this strike wave, and so all of the the teacher strike wave that is. So all of these different factors mean that the stakes are actually rising for these debates, mm-hmm. and that the opportunities to do something real coming out right. of these debates are also rising. And so you know these are these are um, uh, this is a whole bunch of history politics. And um, and differences of opinion that are going to have real consequences in the years to come.
0: Yeah, and I think you know one thing that's instructive to look at, and obviously we're going to have to have a lot more discussions about this, and we should follow this um, as it develops. But the experience of Bernie Sanders over the last two years, I think, is kind of instructive mm-hmm. because here's a campaign that I think really projected socialist politics in the national into the national mainstream in a way that it hadn't for decades and it drew inspiration from and it built on some of the movements that had come before but there's no question that his campaign just legitimized the idea of socialism however Absolutely. you define it that idea on a much broader scale but since since 2016 the Democratic Party has worked very carefully after like just trying to destroy him in the primaries. Then suddenly, you know, he's on the unity commission. Then suddenly he is pushed out there to be one of the public faces of the Democratic Party. He's giving these videos all the time with, you know, oftentimes great statements and town halls and, you know, all the sort of legitimacy and energy of sort of like an idea that there can be a left wing in the Democratic Party. But it's all contained within this very narrow electoral framework. So we were talking about how there need to be these movements, but actually he's like, even though he said his campaign was a movement, it's the movement that matters. There wasn't really a movement behind him. And that's not what he's pushed for and fostered since he took office, which I think was really exemplified recently by, you know, when he was asked whether ICE should be abolished. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only did he, demur on that and refuse to say it should be, but he talked about how we needed rational discussion with the Republicans to come up with a rational Mm -hmm. response to immigration, which sounds a lot like bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform, which the movement is going far beyond Mm -hmm. um, that framework right now. And then in the civility debate in which Nancy Pelosi is attacking Maxine Waters for being uncivil um, To Donald Trump He says Sarah Huckabee Sanders You know has a right to eat where she wants And people should not be you know Doing those kinds of actions of like, which I think have been brilliant actions, like right. the people playing the screaming children in the detention center, like at full blast outside our house right. at seven in the morning. Like I was celebrating that, or, you know,
1: or bird dogging them when they go to eat at Mexican restaurants. Yeah. When DSA <laughs>
0: shut her down at that at a Mexican restaurant, restaurant. not yeah. just any restaurant or A Mexican Russia. And he's like, well, there's constructive ways and there's non-constructive ways. And he's basically writing all that off as non-constructive and saying constructively, what you can do is you can elect, you know, progressive Democrats in 2018. And I think Ocasio-Cortez has is linked to a movement. And she says she's part of the Black Lives Matter movement, part of. DSA, part of the socialist movement, all these different struggles. And, you know, we've talked about the pressures on her, but I think an even more important question is going to be what do those movements do? What does the left do? And as she faces those challenges, are we prepared to build an infrastructure and remain independent and keep those movements pushing and take on board you know, those very challenging questions about how to navigate this terrain, but like do it on use it to build our side in a stronger way. And I think that that and that's constantly going to be that tension because the Democratic Party is trying to pull you back in and it, mm-hmm. it will use the ocasio Cortezes to try to accomplish and do that. And I think there are activists who are trying to figure out how to use the Democratic Party, you know what I mean, to put forward division, but then are running up against some of the limitations of what does it look like to break out of that prison house? And I'm not saying those are easy answers, but I think those are the those are the questions that we have to start to confront.
1: We get into some of those same sorts of themes when we talk with Alex Vitale about his book, The End of Policing and the way in which we need to kind of also grapple with fighting against police brutality and the injustice of the criminal justice system, but how we can't leave it there. And we have to figure out how to inform all of those struggles with uh, an effort uh, that is about fighting back and resisting austerity and actually transforming all of the inequalities that basically policing is meant to uphold, but is not necessarily the cause of.
0: Right. Absolutely. It's a fantastic interview. And, you know, someone who's been a socialist for a while to see people talking about, System change, you know yeah. what I mean? And the bigger picture of the world, as we know, it, I think is a, you know, it's, it's really horrible out there right now. And the world feels like it's spinning to pieces in some ways. And Trump has a plan and we may think that he is off the charts or whatever, but he is actually winning parts of his program and he is building a right wing base and we have to build a left wing base. And I think that, you know, that's what, that's what we've been talking about. So yeah.
2: I still owe me bucks. So I got the right to get bucked. But I try not to let it build up. I'm too high and too better, too much. So I let it go, let it go, let it go.
0: I ran into this girl. She said, Why you always blame me? Why you can't just. And now we're excited to bring you our interview with Alex Vitali. He is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. His book, The End of Policing, is published by Verso Books, and his writings have appeared in The New York Times, Daily News, USA Today, The Nation, and Vice News. And he's been an activist and writer around policing and austerity issues for over 25 years. I guess we want to get started talking about your book, The End of Policing, which was published in 2017, a few years into the Black Lives Matter movement. What sort of inspired you to work on this and write this?
3: So I've been working on policing issues for, for over 25 years. And actually, I, I had the deal with uh, Verso for this book before Eric Garner, before Ferguson, uh, because it's something I had been thinking about for a long time. I had witnessed over that. 20-plus years beforehand, I had witnessed these cycles of, you know, police outrages, protests in the streets, and then a whole series of inadequate reforms Mm -hmm. that either don't get implemented or when they do get implemented don't make any real difference. Mm -hmm. And as a police scholar, I was very aware that the literature just didn't support the vast majority of these reforms as being effective and that what we needed to do was really think more deeply about why the police were such a problematic force in so many of our communities and what an alternative to relying on them would look like. And also, there had just been a real surge in the quality of research that was really critical about the fundamental nature of policing and also an increase in the alternatives that were actually being enacted on the ground so I often say, like, this book wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. We didn't have mm-hmm. the movements. We didn't have the research. We didn't have the practical examples on the ground. There were some people who laid these ideas out in sort of an abstract way in, in uh, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove in the 19, early 1970s, and uh, Christian Williamson's book, Our Enemies in Blue, laid some of this stuff out. But I, I was in a position to kind of take it to the next step.
1: Since Michael Brown's murder, there's been all kinds of discussion, even in political circles and police departments, you know, the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement in response to that. It's sort of driven home all across society that there is a kind of need for reform. So that idea, I think, is no longer controversial. And police departments are therefore kind of embracing that and figuring out, you know, how to, uh, what are the, what are the measures that they're going to, the programs to do so? And they tend to focus on various areas like training, diversity, community policing, better systems of accountability. And I thought one of the most interesting parts of your book was the chapter uh, early on where you go through how these reforms, not only have they not addressed the issues that drove people to protest in the first place, but how very often they actually can even make the situation worse. And so I wondered if maybe you could give an example or two of this dynamic and talk a little bit about why policing seems so resistant to reform uh, and reform measures.
3: Yeah, I try not actually to talk about it as an issue of reforming the police, because that sort of already accepts a language that's that a series of technocratic fixes are going to you know solve right. this problem so i think what's clear to people is that there's a problem with policing mm-hmm. and that something needs to change but it's not necessarily these reforms so let's just think about a couple one of my favorite to talk about is implicit bias training mm-hmm. so this is based on this research in in laboratories that shows <laughs> that if we put people in front of a monitor and show them different images of people and give them little buttons to push that in the aggregate they'll show these little microsecond preferences for lighter skin faces over darker skin faces in different scenarios the problem is this research has never been able to be duplicated at the individual level. Every time an individual retakes the test, there's a different outcome. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But also, they've never been able to show any connection between how we score on the test and how we behave in the real world. Mm. No, no support for that at all. Huh. But really, the issue is so much bigger than this because... It, implicit bias is like the perfect liberal response to the pol- problems of race and policing because it's a response that does absolutely nothing and holds no one accountable. It says mm-hmm. that the problems of race and policing are entirely unconscious and unintentional mm-hmm. and that they can be fixed by just reminding police officers to please not <laughs> you know, be unconsciously biased. Well, we know that, in fact, there's explicit racism in policing. It's not unconscious. There's plenty, you know, when we look at the emails, when we look at the chat rooms, when we look at the radio messages, we find plenty of explicit racism. But there's also a way in which the problems of race and policing are not about the biases of individual Mm -hmm. officers. It's built into the fundamental nature of what we ask the police to do. Mm. The police say, well, we just go where the crime is. Now, that's not entirely true, and we know that's not entirely true. But even if it were true, the whole way that we structure what counts as crime and the reason that certain neighborhoods have the kinds of crime problems that they have are the result of long legacies and ongoing current dynamics of racial exploitation and oppression. So to say that somehow the neutral, unbiased, individual-level decision-making of officers is going to fix the problems that policing produces for poor and minority communities is to erase all that history of exploitation, to erase all the inequality that is at the base of this conversation. So in a way... Again, it's the perfect liberal reform because it does nothing to address the real problem. It erases that problem and creates this kind of fake individual level decision-making dynamic that says it's just about a few bad apples, and they're not even that bad because they didn't do it on purpose. It was all just unconscious. Mm -hmm. It seems
0: like a really good local example of that is when there was the whole movement around stop and frisk. Like, it came out that the massive concentrations of police in, like, the Bronx and black sections of Brooklyn and the Upper East Side, you know, where clearly, you know, people smoke marijuana on the Upper East Side had like no, I think it was like 0.2% of police were deployed um, in that neighborhood, which is a white, wealthy neighborhood. So it's like the very structures of the police, like put them, concentrate them in poor and minority Well, and for
3: years, the police department responded to the inequalities in marijuana arrests by saying, well, we just go where the calls for service are. Because right. we know everyone smokes marijuana <laughs> so but but 80% plus of the arrests were in black and brown communities right. so their response was well that's where the calls for served and for years they said this and now wow. people went in and looked at the call logs and it's just totally made up. They hmm. don't go where the calls. You mean the service police
0: ride Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> and they go to poor communities. And there's a lot of research that's been done, qualitative, quantitative, that shows this pattern across the country, and it is fundamentally racist. But it doesn't require that individual officers be motivated by racial animus because in places like New York and Baltimore, D.C., Detroit, I mean, a majority of police officers are non-white. Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. a lot of the leadership is non-white. It's built into that system, and it's directed by a set of political priorities that want to shape our conceptualization of social problems of ones of individual or group moral failure that will only respond to aggressive and invasive policing.
1: I'm also always struck by the statistics that show that if you were to add up the amount of damage, for example, done by white collar criminals, financial crimes and so on, it vastly outpaces the amount of, quote, damage done by all kinds of other street level crime and so on combined. But you don't see police flooding corporate boardrooms and such and enforcing the laws there. No, they're concentrated where there's poverty, um, and where there's, you know, people that they see are that they assume aren't meant to be policed, and like you were just saying, I mean, it's so much the command decisions about where to deploy forces of of police that kind of shaped this whole dynamic.
3: We're shocked by that only because we've bought into this idea that policing is about reducing harms right. to people, but that's not at all the history of policing or the nature of policing. It's really about managing problems of inequality. The the consequences of exploitation, et cetera, because if we really set about putting all the harms and problems that people experience on the table and then developing ways to respond to that for the state, for communities to respond, things would look entirely differently.
0: Well, that's I think that's an entree point to a deeper issue you get into in the book where you actually talk about the origins of the police, which I think is an important thing for people to understand those origins to kind of then get to the nature of the police that then drive those policy decisions. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: It's There's a provocative chapter title in a sense where, well, it, it, I think for people who are especially new to this issue, it's like the police are not here to protect you. I mean, that's kind of can come as a bit of a shocker. It can land with that kind of. Force, so,
3: you know, it depends a little bit about yeah, who, who you the, are, who the yeah. who is. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but certainly for the target audience for the book, uh, the police are not really here to protect them. And what I mean by that is there's a kind of liberal myth about the origins of policing that starts with the formation of the London Metropolitan Police in 1829. And the idea is that this is the first professional uniform, civilian-controlled body that's full-time job is, is law enforcement, and that this is an advance over relying on the informal night watch or using the militia to control riots and things like that. And every police textbook says this is where policing begins and this is why it begins. But what is left out of this is that the person who creates the London Metropolitan Police, Sir Robert Peel, Robert Bob, the Bobbies, Mm. his job before developing the London Metropolitan Police was that he was in charge of the English occupation of Ireland. Mm. And he develops policing in that context to manage the rural agricultural uprisings that are happening in the Irish countryside. And the reason he needs to do this is because the British army, who they had historically relied on, is tied up with Napoleon in Europe. And the British government is kind of broke, fighting Napoleon, and so he's kind of on his own. And he develops the Irish Peace Preservation Force to go out into these local communities to preemptively attempt to suppress uprisings and... Crime mm-hmm. and other expressions of the intense inequality, poverty, and exploitation going on in the Irish countryside. So, we all have to always understand the interrelationship between colonialism, industrialization, and also slavery. Mm. And these are basically the three primary forms of economic exploitation that are underway in the late. 18th and early 19th century that engender policing. So in the American context, I argue that actually the first real police force in the world was the Charleston City Watch and Guard created in the late 1780s whose primary job was the management of a mobile urban slave population because in Charleston, New Orleans, Savannah, slaves actually worked outside the home of their owners So they had to move freely between where they lived and where they worked, and Mm -hmm. they worked for cash wages that then were returned for the owner. And so the Charleston City Watch and Guard emerges as a kind of urban slave patrol, but it's uniform, professional, 24-hour civilian. It's just that its primary responsibility is managing a slave population. So that history is erased from the liberal narrative about the origins of policing. It's just never discussed. And then we have this further intermingling, you know, the U.S. had its own colonial police forces, the the occupation of the Philippines Mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century, the Texas Rangers who throughout the 19th century are involved in exterminating the indigenous population, driving Mm -hmm. out Spanish and Mexican landholders Mm -hmm. to make way for white settlement. And we have things like the first state police force, the Pennsylvania State Police in mm-hmm. the early 1900s, modeled on the U.S. occupation forces in the Philippines, designed to suppress the workers' strikes or in the mines and factories of Pennsylvania.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: these things are all interrelated, and policing always emerges in response to regimes of exploitation.
0: Right. So it's a tool of social control, essentially. Um, It seems like there's also a parallel development, right, with the emergence of the border patrol um, out of sort of racist militias along the border in California and Texas as, as well. So there's a there's sort of a parallel history in those sort of structures of policing. I think that's a really important history for people. Uh, to to understand, I think The Coup wrote a song. Was it The Coup who wrote The Officer Overseer?
1: No, it's KRS 1.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. <Yeah. laughs> I, don't, I don't know my bands uh, that well, but my I friend, definitely remember friend, that. My friend
3: Stuart Schrader has got a great collection of all songs related to policing, you know, that are oppositional by nature. <laughs> I feel nature. like that's so one of my favorite ones because it draws yeah.
0: that direct link from the slave overseer to the police officer exactly. today, yeah. which is essentially what you're talking Nation about. See you- the function of the police but one of the things you talk about in the book is how in the last few decades policing has become more aggressive more violent more concentrated in you know poor minority communities What are some of the factors that have led to that shift in policing in the last few decades? So
3: so obviously we don't have slavery and domestic colonialism in the same way that we did in the 19th century. We have new regimes of exploitation. And they have to do with the sort of neoliberal restructuring of the economy, austerity, politics, that instead of producing, you know, slave revolts and anti-colonial movements are producing mass homelessness, mass untreated mental illness mass involvement in black markets as, as an alternative to joblessness that is pervasive in, in some communities. And so if we look at what police really do today, it's not monitoring slaves going to work. It's policing these black markets. It's managing these homeless populations. It's it's controlling and criminalizing people with mental illness. And that and and dealing with young people in our failing school systems by intensive policing of schools. These are the real issues of 21st century policing.
1: Yeah, in the 1960s and 1970s, um, you know, there was the mass civil rights movement, the black power movement, and so on. And um, there's kind of two ways in which this touches on the history that you were just talking about that has led to the increase in policing over the last few decades. One is that um, it's just striking how different things were then. I mean, um, this was before the era of mass incarceration had begun criminal justice system was much less kind of central part of regulating social life. Um, And there were, when people were sent to prison, there were actual rehabilitation uh, programs and those sorts of things um, but it's also the period where kind of most people can, who, who know something about that history are also aware of the fact that there was – there were police, consistent police efforts to undermine these movements. And I think it'll maybe come as a bit of surprise to people the way in which this continues to be such an important part of policing today but kind of very rarely talked about. So maybe you could talk about some of those dynamics.
3: Yeah, so I think we – It's extremely important that we understand political policing as the core of policing. Mm. That policing is always created to manage political problems, whether they're slave revolts, anti-colonial movements, workers' movements, strikes, etc. That is the core function of policing. And the discussions about law enforcement and public safety always emerge as a form of legitimation for what are ultimately these political purposes. Because the state only creates these institutional forms because they are facing profound political challenges. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would use cheaper informal systems. So... Political policing in the United States has always existed. Our awareness of it and Mm -hmm. the intensity of it shifts in relationship to the extent of the political challenges that the state faces. So obviously in the 1960s, where you've got everything from AIM to the BLA and, you know, uh, the Brown Berets, right? On a broad front, the state is facing a crisis of legitimacy. And so political policing intensifies and eventually is exposed. But the same thing happened 100 years ago with the rise of radical workers' movements, Sacco and Vanzetti, anarchist movements, bombings, strike activity, the formation you know, and consolidation of the AFL-CIO engendered anarchist squads and red squads. And we see that again uh, around World War I, again in the 1930s. So... Today, with the emergence of uh, Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. Occupy, and some of these other social movements over the last 10 years or so, we find always that there is also a, a resurgence of political policing to monitor, surveil, infiltrate, and ultimately, at various levels, disrupt these social movements. And of course, it's always done in secret. Because it is fundamentally unconstitutional and politically illegitimate for most people, but it's always there. And so we need to, whenever we see a resurgence in movement activity, we need to look for the political policing that accompanies it. It's very hard because we also want to avoid uh, conspiracy theories that aren't really founded in any concrete information. So it's a balancing act because it's secret it's hard to know what's going on, but we also want to avoid you know inaccurate information and and just fantasizing about what's going on and and For me personally, strategically, I think we want to be careful about over investing in a kind of security culture
2: mm-hmm. that
3: actually hamstrings our Absolutely. movements preemptively. By obsessing about secrecy and 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 right. when we need to be developing broad open movements.
0: Well, and some of it seems like I think that's a really important point. And people can focus on what's happening behind the scenes and miss the sort of open, naked ideological ways in which they put this forward. Like I was just I looked up this quote because I was thinking as you guys were talking about how the backlash against the black power movement and sort of redefining the sort of urban rebellions that took place in 1968 and after as quote unquote riots and as sort of, you know, in very racialized terms. And it was really crime. Exactly. And like, there's this quote, Reagan ran a radio commercial um, in the eighties where he says every day, the jungle draws a little closer. Our cities are, our city streets are jungle paths after dark man's determination to live under the protection of the law has pushed back the jungle down through the centuries but the jungle is always there the man with the badge holds it back and it's like that was a radio commercial for a man who was elected president you know like we think Trump is this I mean new phenomenon but you read back to that and you think about how that defined that and Mm -hmm. then I also think you know Clinton's crime bill that put 100,000 more cops on the streets and started the era of mass incarceration in a lot of ways is also part of the backdrop to what you're talking I think about. it's
3: really important that we understand the the rise of intensive and invasive policing, mass incarceration as a bipartisan project mm-hmm. at the local and the national level. Where Clinton is a major player in expanding the drug war, expanding border policing, expanding school policing, and I discuss you know his role in all of those things in the book. Mm-hmm. But at the local level, there's also been this bipartisan buy-in to austerity politics. Mm -hmm. We have no alternative. We have to cut taxes for the rich. We have to cut services. We have to intensify policing. Mm -hmm. And really, uh, ultimately, what the book calls for is a direct attack on that bipartisan consensus, that we have to reject the politics of austerity. We have to reject the reliance on policing to solve all our social problems. And so we can't understand police reform independently of those broader political dynamics, Mm -hmm. because certainly the state understands the connection directly and is happy to have us misunderstand that relationship so that we spend all our time going to police commission meetings, yelling at the police department Mm -hmm. like they invented the war on drugs, Mm -hmm. which they did not Mm -hmm. and which they cannot put an end to. These are political decisions driven by politicians trying to solve political problems. And, of course, they never had anything to do with public health or public safety.
0: Right. Well, I think one of the places we see that the most starkly, or I sort of see that the most starkly, is in Chicago, where you have massive austerity, like Rahm Emanuel closed. How many schools did he 50 close? Schools Fifty schools in the schools. first
1: big round, and then subsequently just a kind of regular closing
0: Schedule. Right, Right. And then on the, on the same hand, you do have like some of the highest murder rates and rates of gun violence and you have the emergence. I mean, in some ways, some of the most political formations emerge in Chicago with Black Youth Project um, and some of the alternatives to that. But that's where you kind of see those two things together because there's a whole narrative around Chicago that's this is why we need the police and that like people, we're protecting people in black and brown communities who are the people suffering from these high rates of crime. And how would you sort of respond to people who say, well, this is a legitimate concern coming from communities that we need to be sensitive to? Um, how would you sort of respond to that?
3: Well, I think we need to look carefully at what BYP is doing, the Movement for Black Lives, uh, Black Lives Matter groups in Chicago, because they're articulating very clearly what kinds of needs their communities really have and what they think the solutions to their community problems are. And policing is not on the list. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. You know, that they want to see community-based anti-violence initiatives reinvested in. You know, they had some great... uh, Programs there in Chicago under the heading ceasefire. Here in New mm-hmm. York, we, we use the term cure violence. But basically non-authoritarian, non-police-related, community-based anti-violence initiatives. You know, we also, we don't want to get in the position of arguing that a few after-school programs and midnight basketball is going to solve deeply entrenched economic pro- and, and racial problems. So we, we need these kind of community-level interventions that deal with people where they are right now while we fight for these bigger economic transformations that have to be part of that agenda. And so that's what I try to do in the book, right, is lay out in every chapter both the kind of immediate, intermediate-level things and the big-picture things that all have to be in the mix. And in Chicago, there, there are people on the ground articulating this. We, they have this amazing no-cop academy movement that's trying to divert funding for a new police academy into community-based services that they think will really address the, pro, the very real problems that their communities face. I mean, there's not a community in this country that has drug treatment on demand.
1: Right. But every community in this country has policing on demand. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: It's
0: very. Well
1: put. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, w- early on in the podcast, we had a conversation shortly after the murder of Saheed Vassell in Brooklyn here, um, just a ab- few
3: blocks from here, yeah, yeah,,
1: about the question of how police end up being the first responders to mental health crises. And it seems at one level, especially given this history that we've just been talking through, Totally straightforward that you should separate the armed law enforcement function from the responding to people in mental crisis function. But getting back to something you said earlier, there's a way in which the police actually don't want to do that because it is crucial to kind of making sure that they have some things they do that kind of can just be seen as having like a pure social good, socially, you know productive component to them, as opposed to just the raw policing component. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of deep contradictions in this.
3: So on the one hand, there are a lot of police who, who don't like going on these calls. And here in New York, there are a quarter of a million of these calls every year. that We call them EDP, calls yeah. emotionally disturbed person. And also we know nationally that between a quarter and a half of all people killed by police are having a mental health crisis. So it's a huge part of what police do, and most police don't like doing it. And it wasn't their idea to take on this function. And I've actually written stuff with police here and and in Europe uh, against this turning over our mental health services for the police to deal with. Because they have entirely the wrong tools And they are not making the problem better, they're making the problem worse, especially if we include jails in Mm -hmm. this calculation. Mm -hmm. So how did this happen? Well, of course, it's part of this neoliberal restructuring, austerity politics. We don't want to build out adequate mental health infrastructure. We closed down the state hospitals, which were deeply problematic, but we never built a community-based infrastructure to allow people to truly live independently Mm -hmm. with support. And so we have, you know, a massive number of people sleeping on subway trains and parks, whatever, wandering the streets. And then, you know, an even bigger number of people who are housed, but who don't get regular support. And so they have intermittent crises. And so... The other side of policing, the kind of thin blue line thing, says, well, you know, who else is going to do it? And we have to really do it. So we want more money, more resources, more training, more specialized equipment, because we are the only thing holding this together. And how dare you criticize us when it doesn't go well because we're doing the best we can in difficult circumstances. And so I call that perspective out because that kind of goes with this idea that police can fix everything. Police are the only thing holding society together and that prevents the development of a broader politics that says we have to quit turning things over to the coercive arm of the state what i want to do is is you know i'm open to working with those police who want to say we don't need to fix the police response we need to end the police response
2: they threw a little girl down on the pavement Pushed through the bike and said, stay out the way, bitch. She was bleeding on the ground through her braces. This what happen when niggas don't stay in their places. The mayor dumping, where he fired the superintendent. But resignation come with bonuses and recognition. So we gon' break the stores on Magnificent Mound. And if we gotta go, let's go to prison and style. Cops killing kids and staying out of jail. But Bobby Schmurter can't even catch bail. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six. Now I got everybody yelling out for 12. One, two, three, four. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, fuck, 12. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, fuck, 12. 16 shots And we bucking back 16 shots 16 shots And we bucking back 16 shots There's a war under the drugs keep on running There's a war
0: on the lungs keep on Yeah, I mean, it seems like a corollary to The police invading every, I mean, in New York City, just the criminalization of homelessness and panhandling and, you know, if just it's in, it's really intense, um. The police there. I feel like we're starting to get into the questions of what some of the alternatives could look like. And I think it would be interesting to sort of, you know, your book is called The End of Policing. So that's a provocative title. Um, And groups like BYP um, have put forward the demand for the abolition of the police and prison abolition. And that's also a position that uh, the Democratic Socialists of America took up at their convention last year. And I think it's starting to reflect a growing development in the movement which you know it's just worth saying is is quite an advance from like when occupy wall street started i remember having debates all the time with people about the police at all like people were embracing the police and you know there was a are they part of the 99% are they part of the 99% that was the debate and now i feel like black lives matter has transformed the debate in a really important way but how do we talk about that you know in a way that connects with people and builds a mass movement and reaches the people whose consciousness i think is really being impacted by the movements but don't necessarily aren't quite at that point yet how do we build that bridge and how do we make those those arguments
3: so Uh, Obviously, I'm influenced by the abolitionist thinking that's out there, by the movements. I consider myself a part of that, but in the book itself, I never actually used the phrase abolish the police. My own feeling about this as someone who worked for many years as an organizer is that you, you you have to be able to relate to people where they are and you have to speak to them about concrete ways of making their lives better. And so that's the way I frame the book. Now, I think there are organizing contexts where coming right out and saying that may be useful, Mm -hmm. but that is a strategic consideration for local organizers. Since I'm operating kind of on a national stage and in a more popular settings, I felt it was important to be practical and concrete. The title is provocative, but what's in the book is really a program for how to fight back against the politics of austerity and criminalization, which always go hand in hand. So for me, abolition is about a process. And it's also about a set of kind of litmus tests when we look at proposals to reform these institutions, because we want to avoid the kind of reformist reforms and embrace the reforms that are going to really lead to some kinds of individual and community empowerment, which is what we really need. So in my mind, reforms that are designed to restore the legitimacy of policing by fixing the procedural errors and professional errors and individual bias errors are never going to lead to the kinds of changes we need and are just going to re-empower an institution that exists for the purposes of controlling and managing and exploiting poor people and people of color in particular. So... What I try to do in every instance is say, show me a problem that (laughs) exists in a community, and let's use some principles in trying to address that. Let's do stuff that's going to be effective, that's going to be done efficiently, and that treats people with as much human dignity as possible. And of course, our criminal justice system is exactly the opposite of that
2: Mm -hmm.
3: it's not evidence based, it's incredibly expensive. And it treats people like animals. It degrades and demeans them at every turn. So when we use those principles for most of the problems these communities face, we can find alternatives. We can develop problems to the way that people experience drugs. We can develop problems to youth violence. We can fix the schools and the disciplinary problems in the schools. We know how to do this. We just lack the political will to make it happen.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and ultimately we lack the movements to create the pressure necessary to compel. Cause as you talk, as we've been talking about, I mean, it's a bipartisan project. I mean, I just was struck thinking about how the, the, the you know, Hillary Clinton found herself caught on the wrong side of the way that the, the political climate around this question has transformed over the last couple of decades from her super comments predators. about super predators in the 1990s to now, you know, then finding herself confronted by people saying, how can you know, Black Lives Matter activists saying, How can you possibly defend these words that you spoke? And she really didn't have a very good defense, it kind of you know, <laughs> there um, is no
0: good defense, right? And
1: so that was, um, you know, and I, I think that, that what goes hand in hand with that is this idea that, um, crime is just exploding and therefore you know that's that's the that's the justification these were super predators that are the um the the you know responsible for exploding co- crime rates one of the kind of fascinating things is that for the last couple of decades actually crime as violent crime and crime statistics generally show that that has fallen off dramatically. Every
3: single year after Diulio wrote this idea about super predators, juvenile crime fell in the United States. Mm.
1: No, that must have caused it then, his writing <laughs> about calling it calling it super predators, right? <laughs> I mean
3: it was already falling when he wrote right. it. Mm-hmm. They were exploiting a few high profile incidents, and of course Diulio was motivated. By a broader, deeply conservative politics mm-hmm. about dismantling the welfare state and about bringing in these neoconservative ideas around criminalizing and incapacitating people. Mm-hmm. And so it was a totally opportunistic uh, shibboleth developed for political purposes based on totally bogus science. And yet, every editorial page and every politician embraced it because it fit with these tropes of austerity and criminalization. And it played a big role in ushering in the era of school policing, which, which I talk about, the, the connection there in the book. And Clinton was a
1: major, uh, Bill Clinton was a major facilitator of that process. Mm-hmm. And I think today, again, we see this same sort of um, creating a kind of panic around the question of crime, especially on the border, being used to, to play into all of Trump's, the Trump administration's sort of, you know, um, fear mongering and racism around border policy. I mean, all the statistics show that actually immigrants, especially newly arriving immigrants, commit crimes at significantly lower rates than native born you know Americans, um, and yet this is sort of used. This idea of the you know criminal aliens is being used to justify these really extreme measures. And and so maybe we you know especially right now where people are actually talking about abolish ICE, and you know there are these big protests now around these these policies. Could could talk about this because it's also something you you talk about border policing in the book and the way in which also like other kinds of policing, incredibly expensive and and used to enforce, reinforce, and to back up big state actors in maintaining the political terms necessary for in, the inequality and so on that are kind of central to the way the global economy works. Maybe you can and talk about that. And on
3: racialized terms, and I make mm-hmm. that very clear in that chapter. And I think also it's important that in this moment, which was not exactly the moment when I wrote the book, mm-hmm. that uh, the, the intersection between the border policing and and the gang hysteria, Mm -hmm. because these two things are linked Mm -hmm. in Trump's mind and in his discourse so that what's important to him is to use the racialized other as a form of political mobilization for his base. So all this discussion about the wall and suppressing the gangs is not practical they know they can't actually build a wall. They know that a <laughs> third of people who are here illegally come by plane. Not, no wall is going to prevent that. And so because there's nothing, it's the, it's a kind of theater, a theater that has very real implications for people who are stopped at the border and have their kids ripped away or forced into detention or whatever. <laughs> but it's, its primary purpose is not the actual interference with immigration, it's this theater of resentment. And it's always a racialized resentment. Mm -hmm. And the border has always been a site for mobilizing racial resentment. Mm -hmm. Border policing begins with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 19th century, with the desire to treat Chinese as a racial other. They're denied legal status in the United States. They can't testify in court. They can't bring criminal complaints against people they don't have civil rights, et cetera, and the the desire to frame them as the racial other after sort of the completion of the railroads, they're deemed superfluous to the workforce and wanna be excluded and demeaned, et cetera, and then attacks on Mexican migrants, et cetera. So there's a long history of this, and, and I had a, a piece in the New York Times not long ago talking about how this new gang hysteria is the new super predator myth that we're constructing Mm MS-13 and what is really youth groups throughout cities as somehow super predators beyond Mm -hmm. the pale and that the only thing we can do is criminalize them. It's a way to dehumanize them, to frame them as the other, and, of course, Trump wants to link them. The reason he focuses on MS-13 is precisely to link them to these border questions, Mm -hmm. to further dehumanize them to delegitimize them as as human beings and so uh, i'm involved in a lot of this work here in new york around gang policing where a big part of our focus is to say these are our young people yeah they are not super predators yes some of them do terrible things and cause terrible harms and when we had this youth killing up in the bronx yeah. recently But these kids are hurting, and all these kids have themselves been the victims of violence and have never had their needs addressed, have never had anyone take their trauma seriously, have never looked at why their lives are so chaotic and such a mess. And so we need to shift that conversation away from vilifying these young people to treating them as human beings that need our help, which is exactly the opposite of what Trump wants to do.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and here in New York City, I, I just live a few blocks from where the largest so-called gang raid took place, that highly publicized raid on the Amsterdam houses um, where there's two public housing projects, basically. And it's it was also in line with what you're saying about austerity used to I think there were like 100 young people who were swept up. They used social media accounts to put people in jail. And it was a massive attack on the public housing as well and as being used to undermine Basic social services in those in those areas, um, despite the families in that public housing rejecting what the police were doing and that sort of increase in control, it was really, really horrific. Yeah, those
3: families need help. They need help, but the you know mass police raids was not what they were asking for.
2: Forty-one shots, and we'll take that ride. Cross this bloody river To the other side 41 shots Cut through the night You're kneeling over his body In the vestibule Praying for his life well, is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. It ain't no secret, ain't no, secret. no secret, my friend. You get killed just for living You're American skin.
0: So I think it would be, I would love to end kind of on a broad strategic level and some broad strategic questions, because, you know, for as long as I've been a socialist, like fighting police brutality has been like one of the major things that I've been involved in. Like I I got political um, around the murder of Antonio Rosario um, and Anthony Baez and their mothers, Margarita Rosario and Iris Baez, who like really like they formed Mothers Against Police Brutality and you know, really created a a movement here in New York City for a while in the early 90s um, before Amadou Diallo's murder. And there's constantly these waves, right, of trying to hold the police accountable, um, to have the police prosecuted for the crimes they commit. And it often feels like, you know, you're going up against this this big blue wall and you're not winning those convictions. And there's and there's sort of a cycle that relies on, you know, the next police killing will generate a new level of outrage, new people in the streets. And it really does. I mean, it's like, you know, every time something like that happens and there's a struggle, it's like ordinary working class people, the kinds of people you don't see necessarily at all the protests, but like are out there in the streets in a different kind of way. But what you're talking about is pulling together the question of policing with austerity and repression. And I guess I have a question about how do we then... What implications does that have for movement building and the kinds of demands we put forward and and how we can build a more enduring movement that's not just reactive to police murder, but can actually begin to to win some real reforms? Because that's what I think feel because the police are so ingrained in capitalism, it feels almost like an unreformable thing. Um, and ha- how do we how do we do that? Or what do well, we start on that?
3: by quit calling for body cameras and community policing? <laughs> And we sort of laugh about that, but that is what people call for in these situations. Yeah. Uh, because often the fam- often the families and local religious leaders haven't been really necessarily involved in movements. They're responding in the moment in a crisis, and they fall back on these kinds of convenient mm-hmm. things. Hire some more black police officers. Do some sensitivity training. These things don't work and they just reproduce the power of the institution. Mm -hmm. So it's about getting people to frame their demands and channel their anger into a broader analysis that says what we want is like, why was Eric Garner subjected to policing at all? Right. Get rid of broken windows policing. Those officers don't need de-escalation training. They need to be not bothering people who are not doing anything seriously wrong and who need very different kinds of government assistance. We don't need a kinder, gentler, more professional war on drugs. We need to get rid of the war on drugs. And there are people like BYP, Mm -hmm. the Dream Defenders, the Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles, who are articulating this very clearly. When someone is killed, they come out and say, this is a direct result of the government telling the police to wage war on our communities through broken windows, anti-homelessness, anti-youth policies, and we've got to get rid of those policies. And we've got to hold our elected officials accountable, not just the police. Mm-hmm. They come out, you know, the local city council member wants to come out on the picket line with us when someone gets killed and say they're a champion of our movement. And then they go back to the city council and vote to increase the number of police or to give them more money for a training program while we still don't have any mental health services or drug treatment programs in our communities.
0: Right. Or there's a stop and frisk movement that has tens of thousands of people involved in Bill de Blasio, you know, liberal Democratic mayor rides that wave. To power, But he has just continued to support the police and fund the police and implement broken windows and kind of rehabilitate, stop and frisk just with new new language.
1: Yeah. But a lot of that is masked by the, the, quote, animosity between de Blasio and the police force. And so while he sort of gets this reputation as being their antagonist, what Jen said is also really what's going on, kind of like you were saying, behind the scenes, so to speak. Well,
3: it shows how incredibly defensive this whole thin blue line mentality is so that even the most superficial rhetorical criticism of even their most egregious and illegal behavior Mm -hmm. is seen as he's a cop hater, Mm -hmm. when in reality he's a cop empowerer, Mm -hmm. increasing the head count, giving them license to continue to do broken windows and all this other stuff. So uh, it's really just shows how incredibly polarized these these conversations are and why I don't think we should waste a lot of energy trying to convince policing as an institution to somehow fix itself. Right. Because it's not going to. We have to go over their heads and get them out of the picture. Right. as much as possible.
0: Well, when we were talking about that antagonism, it just reminded me that the police inadvertently totally proved your case when they went on strike when they were mad at de Blasio. And they went on strike and everything was fine. Crime right. rates didn't rise. In fact, communities felt safer. Like every, everything was
3: Civilization, just... as we know, it did not collapse <laughs> because the police quit taking enforcement action for two weeks.
0: Yeah, in fact, things looked pretty good during those two weeks. Um, so... And I think the other strategic question I had, and I know we're kind of at time and I feel like we've we've gotten a lot of good material here, is that when you link austerity and neoliberalism and repression to the policing, it also seems like that's an opportunity to create a broader constituency for the kinds of arguments you're making about the end of policing, because I think the Black Lives Matter movement has started to shift, you know, It's push and pull, but it started to shift consciousness more broadly amongst like white Americans who start to see the reality of the police. There was this, you know, video that kind of went viral about these two white truck drivers in Pittsburgh who were stopped for seven hours because of a highway blockade and watched the, you know, and because of that protest, they watched the video of the shooting of Antoine Rose and they were like, oh, yeah, this is horrible. And we're with. The protesters. And so you're seeing that, but it seems like a sort of broader movement that incorporates some of the demands you're talking about about investment in education, broad economic policies, can also begin to create a broader constituency that links what feels like a huge growing sense that like class inequality has to be confronted with police, you know, policing is part of that class inequality. And I think your book does a good job of providing a political basis for, you know, as kind of a tool for the movement and for Absolutely. people to make some of those cases.
3: Yeah, I think we have to understand like healthcare for all is a police reform. Right. <laughs> right. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. that a big expansion of affordable public housing is a police reform measure, mm-hmm. right? Drug treatment on demand throughout our society, drug legalization or decriminalization, decriminalization of sex work. These are police reform demands because they reduce the scope of police power, they will reduce incarceration rates, and they're about producing social justice in in exactly the way that policing does
1: not. Yeah, and in fact tries to deny
0: So that seems like a great place to end. I mean, people should definitely check out your book, The End of Policing, um, which is published by Verso, and we will provide a link to it in the show notes so people can get a copy of the book. Is there anything else that you would want to tell people to do or you know to look at or to follow um if they're interested in this episode
3: well i have a website alex-vitali with an e on the end dot info that has my upcoming speaking engagements oh, around the u.s europe the uk and people uh, can follow me on twitter at
0: avitali awesome and we'll put all that in the show notes too in case you missed it Thank nice. you so much for yeah. being for here. Coming. I'm really excited about this book. And Great conversation. The Thank you. E.
2: Order, order, order. Ice Cube, take the motherfucking stand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help your black ass? You goddamn right. Won't you tell everybody what the fuck you gotta say? Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown. And not the other color so police think. They have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit because I ain't the one for a with a badge and a gun to be beaten on and thrown in jail we can go toe to toe in the middle of a sale fucking with me cause I'm a teenager with a little bit of gold and a page pager searching my car looking for the product thinking every nigga is selling narcotics
1: so that's our show uh, we hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash better off red pod and consider being coming a financial supporter of the podcast. We just wanted to let you know as well that we'll be skipping uh, next week because all of us will be at Socialism 2018 in Chicago. So if you'll be there, we'll see you there. And also we wanted to close out this episode by uh, reminding people to check out Frederick Douglass's "What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July?" Believe me, if you haven't done this before, get your get together with your friends on the Fourth of July and read passages from this speech. You can thank me later for the idea. It is a fantastic speech, and we're going to uh, play some snippets of Brian Jones reading from that speech as we close out this episode.
4: What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns are to him mere bombast, fraud, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Go where you mill. roam wherever you want. Go through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: Search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation. And you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival. Mm